we can be in your presence this morning. Thank you for the power of your word, the power of your prayer. Father, we pray this morning that you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we not see anything but you this morning and what takes place. Prepare us now, Father, to receive from you as we honor and worship you. In Christ's name, amen. If you have your scriptures with you, would you turn to the 11th chapter? <clears throat> I think we missed a singles announcement this morning, didn't we? Does somebody want to make that announcement while we're turning? Okay, take it. This will never work. Jeff, get up here. <clears throat> never work. For those of you who don't know me, I am Jeff Young. I've been going here since May. Anyways, we got together last night as singles, and we decided that the third Saturday of every month, we are going to do something, period. This February the 18th is the third Saturday of February, and we're going to go ice skating and get ice cream. There are going to be details next Sunday in the bulletin, but just look for it. Plan on it February the 18th, ice skating and ice cream. Ice skating and ice cream. What a, what a combination, Jeff. <coughs> no hot chocolate. <laughs> That's great. We really do want to uh, get a neat singles group going here. Um, and Jeff and some other folks are taking some major responsibility in that. So we invite you just to, to join in. We're going to get a consistent, uh, consistent group going. It's going to be neat. Continuing on with our series and Reading the Red, uh, teaching on the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to talk about the Lord's Prayer this morning. And before I even begin, I want to tell you that I know that you have probably heard oodles of sermons about the Lord's Prayer. And so what I said this morning won't even begin to scratch the surface of probably what you already know, but it may supplement what you already know. There are good preachers <laughs> that go on for weeks and weeks and weeks um, talking about the Lord's Prayer. And what I would like to do with you this morning is just take a look at the basics of the Lord's Prayer so that when you pray it, you can be reminded of God's basic provision in the Lord's Prayer. The first thing I'd like, before you even get into the Lord's Prayer, I want to, to, to share with you, as you know, if you are Bible students, that there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer in the Bible. One is in Luke and one is in Matthew. It does not mean that one is accurate and one is inaccurate. What probably happened, see, <clears throat> John, uh, the disciples came up and said, Lord, teach us a prayer like John taught his disciples. What, what was par for the course back at this time was that every little religious group would have a special prayer. You know, it's kind of like a password, <clears throat> and, uh, and that's how you would be identified in part as a part of that group. It's, some, it's something that you knew to be of the character of the leader. He taught it to you. It was special. John the Baptist had one of those prayers for his followers, and so, you know, the disciples wanted one from Jesus. <clears throat> <clears throat> so Jesus probably taught this on more than one occasion, and on probably one or more of those occasions, he amplified it into Hebrew parallelism. 
Now let me teach you something, if you don't already know it, about Hebrew parallelism. Let me show you first of, what, of all what it is. If you will turn in your scriptures to Proverbs, um, <clears throat> you will read this in, in many forms in scripture, and so this will, this will help you out in all of your scripture study, just to know this literary form. Hebrew parallelism is basically a literary style in which a sentence or topic sentence is stated and then another sentence follows up from it in order to expound upon the sentence that has just been stated. There are basically three ways of doing that in Scripture, listed in Scripture. One is to complete the statement that has been stated. One is to continue the statement. And one is to contrast with the statement, thereby clarifying by contrast. First chapter, <clears throat> verse 5. A wise man will hear and increase learning. That's the topic statement. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Now that is a completing parallel. What it says is, a, it gives a general basis, a wise man is open, and then it gives a specific or a, an extension or a clarification. You can do this by asking for counsel. There's a specific to the general, okay? So that helps that topic sentence out. Let's take another, a look at another one. <clears throat> Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then, parenthetically, however, this is a contrasting, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's a clarification by contrast here. Hebrew parallelism. Again. Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. That is parallelism by continuation. That is not really an, explanatory, an explanation of the first sentence, nor is it a contrast. It just is a continuation of the first sentence. Now, what the difference that you see in the Lord's Prayer between the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew is simply a literary form of parallelism. And Matthew, for you biblical students would, would know this, Matthew was much more inclined to speak to a Jewish audience. So he would be much more inclined to go toward this literary form. You know that the writing in Matthew is in the traditional rabbinical structure. And you know other hints, uh, for example, when they uh, have, both, both of them have the genealogy of Jesus in them. And Matthew goes back to what? Abraham, or the founder, founder of the Hebrew nation, the founder of Israel. But Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Luke's scope, or his intended audience, was more universal, much broader than Matthew's. And so Luke has the very simple, uh, very direct version, and Matthew goes more toward the Hebrew form um, because that was his audience. Okay, now that being stated, work with me here, <laughs> that being stated, let's go to the Lord's Prayer and just simply see in what form Jesus would have us, was, would have us pray. Now this, again, is a prayer. Many, many congregations use this every Sunday, and that's fine. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I know some of you that come from traditional churches miss that being used every Sunday. But 
Jesus said in Matthew, when you pray, pray in this way or pray in this pattern. And this is what I want to teach this morning. I want to teach the pattern of the Lord's Prayer very simply. First, God's way. I, I, I must have been tired when I was writing out this, <laughs> this outline. It's God's way, not God's why. Um, there's a couple of typos in there I hope you'll forgive me for. God's way, the first agenda for prayer in the mind of Jesus was to get yourself on the side of God. At one point during the Civil War, some men came to Abraham Lincoln, and they were trying to encourage him. And they knew him to be a man of faith. And they said to him, Mr. President, I believe God is on our side. And Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not worried whether or not God is on our side. I'm worried whether or not we're on God's side. That is the essence of prayer. Usual prayer is trying to get God on our side. We go and the first thing we do is say, God, I just I need to tell you this. And we start to present our case so that he will give us what we ask so that we can get him into a position of getting on our side and encouraging us and supplying us. That's not the agenda of prayer. Jesus said the agenda of prayer is to first go and get on God's side, get in God's way, our Father. The Greek word is Petros, but it could be Abba because it's being used in a very familiar way. Abba, Daddy, our Daddy. Who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Now, that's Matthew's version. Luke's version is simply what? Our Father in heaven? Let me flip it back here. I will be flipping back and forth. <clears throat> no. Father, hallowed be thy name. It's simply a... Matthew uses a continuation, par parallelism. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Of course, the name was the nature of a person. Did you, when you named your baby, did you look through a baby book? And did you find a name that you liked? You know, we liked the name, uh, I can't remember, was, I think it was Mary. We were, we were thinking about, of course, we didn't have any girls, but we just, you know, always thought we would. And, uh, but came across it and it means, like, bitter or something. <laughs> I mean, I was really rocked back. I thought it'd be Holy Mother of God, you know, no, nope, bitter or something like that. So we go, oop, can't use that one, so... Anyhow, but we, we looked for names that we thought might fit, you know, the personality of God that we hoped God would put in to our children. And they did. You know, Joshua means Jehovah is God. It's a strong name. Isaac, our second one, is he who laughs. And he does. For any of you who know Isaac, laughs continue. I mean, the guy is Mr. Party Animal, you know. Joel is, is a derivative of Joshua. Jehovah is God, you know. And so there's a, there's a nature that goes along with it. When we say, hallowed be thy name, what we are doing is we are lifting up the nature of God. We are recognizing the holiness of who God is, not what he is or not an attribute of God. We are lifting up the person of God, all right? And then it says, thy kingdom come, and in, well, in Luke it says, thy kingdom come, simply. Matthew, again, has Hebrew parallelism that defines or completes what thy kingdom come means. Thy kingdom come, it could be a, a colon there, a dot, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what thy kingdom come means. When a king comes, it means automatic obedience. If you call him king, if you call him Lord, implied is obedience. If you don't obey, there's no lordship. Jesus say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? See? So therefore, this is simply a wish, a desire to say, I am wanting what you want. Thy kingdom come, by, by definition, that means thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the definition of thy kingdom. Then, after you say, I want what you want, I want your rulership down here on earth. I want your lordship in my life. That's the side I'm on. Then, Jesus said, we can present our needs. Now, this is, to me, the astounding part. Jesus said, basically, I will define for you in this prayer what your needs really are. When somebody comes in to talk with me, a lot of times I just flippantly say, what do you need? And nine times out of ten, the answer is, as they sit down, a lot of stuff. Because that is our attitude. When we feel need intensely, we feel like we need a lot. That is a broad spectrum of things. And Jesus defined our needs for the present, for the past, and for the future. And they were very simply. Give us this day our daily bread. Luke says, give us each day our daily bread. That is more, more the sense of it all. And again, for those of you who have studied Scripture, you know there's a remembrance that when the children of Israel were out in the desert, that they had no food, and every morning they, were, they could go out and they could scrape this sticky dough-like stuff off the bottom of leaves that was bread-like called manna, and they would collect enough for the day, and that's how they lived. And they couldn't store it up because it would spoil. They could never get enough for tomorrow. They could never keep it long enough for tomorrow. They could get enough. They couldn't keep it long enough because it would spoil. And therefore, God supplied their needs day by day, nothing in advance. You know, ever since that time, we've been trying to get it all in advance. You know, Lord, just give it to me. I'll distribute it as, as I need it. And ever since that time, the Lord's been trying to teach us no day by day we try in various ways you know we try physically you know we try to store up and i know that some of you are taking courses on finances and i tell you right from jump street i'll teach about finances after easter but but i know there are wise things to do financially and biblically wise things and i encourage you in that i really do but let me tell you a basic attitude that scripture has that should never disappear. No matter what you do with your money, all of it should be able to disappear in a minute and you still be satisfied with the Lord's provision for you day by day. It's not how much money you have. It's how sure you are that God can provide for your needs when you need it. What's our need? Bread. Give me enough to eat physically. And you and I can take on the world. 
Are you sure we don't need more now? Bread. Give us this day our daily bread. When I was a little boy, my aunt and uncle had uh, camped at uh, a place on Lake Erie. And they would invite us up. And boy, we just thought that was the richest, neatest thing in the whole world. They had a boat, a lime, an old wooden lime and boat, about 16 feet. We thought that thing was a yacht. You know, had a 35 horse Johnson on it. And boy, we just, yeah, baby, went, you know. And I wasn't much of a camper. I'm not, I, I don't, bugs and I, you know, I don't like things crawling up and living in my skin or anything. But, but it was near the lake, and I love water, love water. So we would go up, and one of my favorite things to do was to go down to this, they had this old store, this old general store down, on, down by the bay. And we would go down there, and we would just hang around, and these old salts would come in. You know, these guys with these fishing hats that really had stuff on it that they could use, you know? <laughs> they, they knew what to do with it, you know? At any given moment, these guys could take out a hook and, and two seconds have a fish. You know what I mean? And they had been around there forever. But the scenery was changing. All of the new rich folks were coming in, and they were building up these cabins, and they were, you know, these big things with towers for aerials off their boats would go up. And, and they were rich enough to buy their kids speedboats. Now, you can imagine the conversation of these guys who have lived, you know, 100 years, been there forever, probably shook hands with the Indians, the Erie Indians, you know, and watching these 12, 13-year-old kids with their own boats out racing, dodging, you know, placing this, you know, some of the other skiers in danger. And one day I stood there and I was listening to these guys. I let, these guys had such beautiful common sense. I mean, it was wonderful to listen to these people. Um, and there was this young, spoiled brat out in the bay, racing in and out, just narrowly missing people. And one of the guys knew the family, you know, and they knew that this kid had been given everything but love and had been given mostly everything but responsibility. And what trouble this kid not only was making for himself but making for everybody else. And they saw that, in this case, wealth was ruining this kid. And one old salt turned to the other old salt, and with full conviction, I love this, listen to this, said, you know what we need in this country? And the other old guy said, what? And he said, another Great Depression. I like that. You know why? Because we always think we need more than we do. We always think we've got this extensive list that if I could just get it all, life would be right. But when we are without, we know real quick what we need and what we don't, what's enough and what's not. Money doesn't ruin people. I've got a nephew who has a boat of his own, and he's one of the most responsible kids I know. He's one of the most mature kids I know. It's not an issue of money. It's an issue of realizing that we don't need any more than bread. And whatever else we got is jelly. See, we, don't, we could have it all taken away tomorrow 
And if God would just give us enough bread to live for the day, it'd be okay. That's the attitude of Jesus. That's the attitude of Jesus. Now, there's a spiritual dimension to this also. Lord, this is what I need theologically. <laughs> this is what I need. I need for you to tell me all of these theological insights so I can understand you. Jesus said, no, you don't. If you look in John 6, we have one need theologically for a valid religion, one need, and that's the bread of life. We need Jesus, period. Last Sunday, no, it was two Sundays ago now, I was going out and somebody was here for the first time and they stopped me and they began to ask what we believe as a congregation. So I'm always uncomfortable with this because <laughs> we believe everything. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. It is tough. I mean, we've got every spectrum of theology in this body, and that's what we love. We're just not, it's hard to define. So he started asking me, you know, and basically he was doing what I would do. I mean, I would want to go, and I would want to make sure that, that, it's, that a, uh, a, a body was was based on Christ and, and you know, uh, believing in Scripture and so on and so forth. I mean, that's the thing you do. But as he stood there and talked to me about these theological issues, and he kept saying, well, now, what do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe? And he, he kept talking about whether or not the heathen were saved and, you know, all of the traditional questions. And I began to feel invaded. I began to feel like saying to him, although I did not say to him, wait a minute. I don't want to tell you what I believe until you get to know me. Because if I tell you what I believe, all you'll have is a theology. You'll never know me. And I want to know you. Churches do that. They make up theologies instead of sending people to Jesus. <laughs> if we can just take a church stand, you know, if we can just get a sound enough doctrine... And so, bit by bit, week by week, month by month, we go to the elders and we say, well, elders, you know, what do you think we believe on, I don't know, women in ministry? What do you think we believe on abortion? What do you think we believe on this? What do you think we believe on that? And pretty soon, layer by layer by layer, you can read everything that we believe and never have to go to God personally. That is an anathema to how Christianity started out. What do you need? You need bread. You need Jesus. That's it. And the theology of a church should always be, when in doubt, ask Jesus. Don't read the church doctrine on it. Don't read 42 books on it. Ask God. Start on your knees or you'll never end up there. That is the theology of the church. Because God wants us to have companionship with Him, not theology of Him. People are believing a lot more correctly theologically. According to the recent, most recent polls, Gallup polls, in the last 10 years, the belief, the, the, the number of people, number of Americans who believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ has risen from 78% to 84%. 84% of Americans believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Along with that, though, 
the number, the percentage of people who have not been a part of a body of believers for the last six months has risen also from 40 to 44%. What that means is people have a correct theology, but not a correct life. <laughs> they don't, it's not personal to them, see? Teach me what to believe, and then I won't have to work with God. Then I won't have to know God. Then I won't have to... Remember in the Old Testament where all the Israelites gathered around Moses and they said, Moses, you go up to the mountain. You speak with God because we can't. All of us start out along those easy roads. If I just get a church that'll tell me what to think, if I just get a minister to tell me what to think, could I say to you something to you? I don't have any access to God you don't have. No access to God you don't have. What do you need? What do I need for my present relationship with God? Jesus. That's all you need. The rest is jelly. Yeah, we will need to make decisions. But I cringe every time somebody comes up to the elders and say, let's make a policy on this. Because a church that is full of policies doesn't need to seek God daily. Secondly, Luke says, that Jesus said, forgive us our sins, for we also, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now Matthew says, in that same passage, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, as I'm sure he did, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I like Luke's version better, and let me tell you why. In the first place, we've always had this thing about, well, is it trespasses, is it debts, is it sins? What is it, you know? It's the Methodists versus the Presbyterians versus the good old boys, you know? Methodists are always trespasses. I never did know what that mean. When I, when I was brought up in a Methodist church, I never, never knew what trespasses were. I, thought, I, I just conjured up this sign, no trespassing. And I'm thinking, I've never trespassed, you know? Never knew what that was. Debts is more theologically correct. The word transliterated means that you owe someone something. But let me tell you why that doesn't work very good either. When we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, instead of forgive our sins. Sin, the, the word uh, Luke uses is harmartia, which means um, to miss the mark. You, you're aiming for something and you miss it. You, you come up short or you go one side or the other side. Debt which comes from a Greek word that literally means to be sent from, to be sent from, is a dividing line between people that once it's erased, they separate. Now let me, let me, let me just illustrate this to you. Those of you who have paid off a car, have you kept in touch with the bank? I mean, you have erased that debt, right? Was it because you wanted a closer relationship with a bank? Did you write them and say, how are the kids, you know? Let's go on vacation sometime together. No. You erase a debt 
so that you don't have to do have anything you don't owe them anymore so you don't have to pay attention to them anymore. That's why you erase a debt. But sins are something that come in between you and someone else. And when you want to get rid of your sins, it is so that you can hit the mark, so that you can get with God face to face. See? Therefore, when we pray to God, forgive us our sins, what we really are asking for is permission to crawl up in our daddy's lap. We don't want these things that keep us away from you. We don't want these things that we have to think about and feel guilty for and therefore not want to come near you. What was the first reaction of Adam when he sinned? Behind the bush. You know, I'm hiding. I'm ashamed. I don't want to go near somebody that makes me feel ashamed. Therefore, God pulls out the bush. Say, I forgive the bush. <laughs> Wipe it away. So we can reconcile our relationship with God. Let me tell you something very important. If you or I do not ask for the forgiveness of our sins, we will never progress in our relationship with God. We will never hear His voice. We will never understand His Word because there's something inside of us that does not want to come near Him. Only with a clean slate can we give ourselves permission to come near Him, and only with a clean slate can we quit doing what we have repeatedly been doing and get mad at ourselves for. Because that becomes our identity, see? When our sins are forgiven, God says, that's not who you are anymore. And so we are free to establish new patterns in our lives. And until our sins are forgiven, that's who we know ourselves to be. And so we are not free to establish new, new patterns in our lives. We go on carrying on the same old thing. Romans 7, I do the very thing I hate. So the forgiveness of sins is extremely important. And we, when we come to an Ash Wednesday service, and I know that many of you are from, from different backgrounds. Most of my family is Roman Catholic. It's a very important time. In, our ba in, in my background, I remember the dots on the head, you know? But there was something significant about that because that was a time, I call it the unsure time, <laughs> when things weren't positive. When you looked at yourself realistically and in comparison to God, there was something radically wrong. I know that for a lot of us, it hurts to say, I'm a sinner. But you know when you get real serious about, about it, it's freeing to admit I'm a sinner. That's a whole big load off of our chest, you know? It says I don't have to carry this around anymore. And so when we have a time when we can look at God and say, God, I have fallen short. And I'm not going to look for the positive in this. You know, I'm not going to try to bring up three points that rhyme and, and, you know, go dancing on my merry way. I'm going to stay in front of you until I repent because my life isn't coming right. Sin is more serious than that. Then we can make progress. And secondly, there is an indebtedness 
that other people have toward us. And there's a different word in Greek for this. It's not hamartia. There's a different word, and the word means to be able to be sent from clean. Now, let me, let me just share this with you. Forgiving someone does not always mean you will be sent back to them. What it means is that the Lord is free to do with that relationship. You are free to do with that relationship because you are now brothers and sisters. Let me give you an example. Many of you were violated as young children in one way or the other. You were attacked, you were taken advantage of, and you've been carrying that around your whole life long. You might not think about it 24 hours a day, but every time you start to trust, every time you begin to become vulnerable, it comes back. I have been violated, and I am chained to that, and I cannot love like I want to love. When it comes time to decide whether or not you will forgive the person who violated you, that's a tough decision. And it's all up to you. God does not force you to do that. It's a tough decision because our first inclination is that we want justice. We want to see that person turn from their wicked ways, and then we can forgive. And we want back all of the years that we lost and all of the times that we hurt and all of the times no one understood. We want that back. But the reality of the situation is we don't always get it back. The reality of the situation is that sometimes that person has died. Sometimes that person has moved away. Sometimes that person is so far into the world they will never know what they did. Now you have a choice. Are you forever chained to your past? Or do you forgive? It's not a choice of the heart. It's a choice of the will. Because until we can forgive those people who have harmed us, who have violated us, we give them top priority on the control of our lives. They are still in control of our lives. They are still in control of our feelings. Now you've got to decide. Do I with my will Decide to relinquish the anger and the despair and the shame and the guilt that I rightly or not rightly feel. Do I decide to forgive or do I stay chained to the past? It's that simple. Our God is a God of freedom. Our God is not a God of burden. And he wants us to forgive, not because the other person deserves it, because he wants us to be free. 
What is our need in dealing with our past? Forgiveness. If you can forgive those people who have harmed you, if you can forgive yourself, then you can do what God has done for you. It's a very simple need, tough to do, but very simple. We don't need to correct everything. We don't need to go back and establish wonderful relationships. But we need it cleared up. And thirdly, when we look at the future, Jesus said this, and lead us not into temptation. Very simple. Matthew, again, has a contrasting type of parallelism. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does that mean? Does God really lead us into temptation? Would he ever? No, James says that that isn't what God does. <laughs> Don't blame it on God when you're tempted. The Greek word for temptation is really testing. And this is a very human cry. It does not so much ascribe to the character and nature of God as it does admit our own fear. God, don't test me. I mean, don't get me in a big test. Even though you know I'm going to pass, I don't, want to, I don't want to. Again, when I was a little kid, we went to the same vacation spot every year. Curtis, Michigan is in the Upper Peninsula. Big Manistique, Little Manistique Lakes. Beautiful spot. It's probably a metropolis now. It was real quaint and rustic back then. And I was just learning to swim. Now, when you're raised in Ohio, you don't really know how to swim. You don't need to know how to swim. I mean, you know, the, the, it was, the kids who could afford it would take swimming lessons because it was a thing to do. But my parents didn't have a lot of money, and, and so, you know, I just learned a little bit. And I, didn't, I never fell in a puddle or whatever needed to get out of a snowdrift. It wasn't any big deal, so... I still was not a great swimmer when I am still am not a great swimmer. Um, um, but when I was learning, when we would go to the lake, we would have the same conversation every year. My dad, who did not mean to scare me, just said, well, when I was a boy. <laughs> you ever do that to your kids? I do that in mine all the time. Well, I'll tell you what, when I was a boy. And they roll their eyes. You know. I love it. My dad would say, well, when I was a boy, I tell you, you know, people just picked up their kids and threw them in the middle of the drink. You know, he called the lake the drink. I could never figure out why. Called it the big drink. We never drank it, but he called it the drink. Threw them in the middle of the drink, and then it was sink or swim. That's how you taught a kid to swim. And the whole time he was saying that, every time I'd say, Lord, don't let him do that to me. I don't want to learn like that. Knowing he had perfect freedom to you know, that he literally could take me down to the end of the dock and throw me in and teach me how to swim like that, see? Because I would have to. Lead us not to the testing. Lord, don't throw me in the middle of the drink. I'll learn. Give me a little time. Now, sometimes we end up in the middle of the drink. I also, also fell off the dock a number of times. Actually, somebody moved it on me, but nobody would admit it. Sometimes we end up in the middle of the drink through our own fault or somebody else has thrown us in there or Satan has come along, you know. Satan threw Job in the middle of the drink. 
Sometimes we end up there, but this is the human plea that says, God, if it's up to you, <laughs> and if it's not in your plan, I'd just prefer that as we go along, I'd have little tests instead of a big one. And that if I do get into a big one, you would deliver me from evil. That's all that is. What do we need for the future? To know that no matter how far in the drink we are, and some of us are real far in the drink right now, some of us are swimming for our lives right now, that God will be able to deliver us and lead us out of there. What is the need for our future? Answers? No. <laughs> Financial security? Nah. So many of us are concerned about so many things, like Martha. We're worried about so many things. I talked to a guy after the last service. Many of you, for some reason, God has led many people in ministry to this body. And he was talking to me about a sermon or a, a church he once preached in. And on the, on, the, on the pulpit, there was a little saying he's never forgotten. said, worry is a mild form of atheism. <laughs> many of us are so concerned about our future. And we think we need all of this in order to face it. We need nothing but God's guidance. And then he doesn't have to be out in front of us. In Isaiah 30, there's the neatest scripture. And we'll, I'll end with this. There's the neatest scripture. Starting with verse 19. This is for you who are really going through a rough time right now. I want you to listen to this. This is great. Underline it. Star it. Put it on your refrigerator. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, you may be in a tight spot. Listen to this. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. The person of God. Listen to this last. And your ears will hear a word behind you. He's not out there in front. You know, so many times before we take a step, we want to know what we're doing. And sometimes that is valid, but sometimes he's not going to tell you until you start moving. Until you start moving in the direction you think he wants you to go. A moving ship is easier to steer than a still one. A bicycle moving at a healthy clip is easier to stay on than one staying in one spot. And sometimes God is not going to tell you what to do until you start moving in the direction you believe He wants you to move. And then, guess what? Your ears will hear a word behind you. 
This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. What do you need for the future? Guidance. And forgiveness for the past and bread for today. That's all we need. That's all we need. Would you pray with me as we prepare ourselves for communion? Lord God, as we come to your table, we come to get on your side, not to get you on ours. We would, before we would even begin to pick up this bread and this cup, admit our sinfulness. We have done things we knew were wrong. And we are sorry. Help us to be repentant. We have not done things that we knew you wanted us to do. And again, we are sorry. Help us to be repentant. Help us to actually behave in the way that we believe. We come asking for very simple things as you yourself taught us to ask. Not only for forgiveness, but for bread. For just enough to do what you would have us do. And Lord, if you take all the rest of it away, we will love you still. And for guidance. So many of us have such huge questions about the future. Let us hear you. If not in front of us, then behind us. Saying to us, this is the way. We pray this in Jesus' name.